0: Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. This is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Special guest today, a lady with a unique perspective of universal trait, the love of art, Ms. Roya Kajavi, a curator, art patron, art consultant. Welcome to Seldom Said, Roya.
1: Thank you so much for having me
0: today. Okay. I can assure you, it's our pleasure. <laughs> can we begin with a little bit of personal background? Who you are, where you've been, and what has brought you to this time and place? Uh, yes, um, I grew up in
1: Iran um, until the age of seventeen. Uh, I um, basically grew up in a uh, household of very creative people. My father was an architect and educated in Germany. My mother was a fashion designer. She was educated in France. And my sister and I went to a French school, which was quite international in the capital of Tehran. And um, uh, we both lived there until... um, 1978 where we came to the u.s. to attend boarding school uh... for me it was my senior year in high school and for my sister she was in tenth grade and um, that's uh... how our journey in america started not though do- knowing that um, six months later our country would go through a major revolution and that we would not return back to our own homeland Um so uh, we ended up staying, um, going to college. Um, I went to Wellesley uh, and um, uh, basically uh, started um, my career right after Wellesley uh, in Boston, uh, working in the fashion industry, in fashion merchandising. And uh, first in Boston, um, and then I got married um, to my college sweetheart um, who was at MIT and uh, we both moved to New York City where he started working in finance and I was uh, transferred uh, to a department store um, where I uh, started working as a buyer and then a merchandise manager and very quickly I up the rank to become a vice president of the firm, and uh, um, I think I was the youngest person at that time to have reached that level of seniority at the firm, and um, after seven years, uh, I was recruited by uh, a headhunter, um, and I started. Um, I switched and worked for um, a French designer called Yves Saint Laurent, which I'm sure everybody knows. And uh, I started working um, as their vice president of sales and marketing for North America, uh, where I used my merchandising skills, my analytical ability, and um, also my mastery of the French language and uh, also my multicultural background was very uh, welcomed and. Uh, uh, celebrated uh, where I had contact with um, people in various uh, backgrounds and and and, and um, um, nationalities. So um, I worked for Isadoro for seven years uh, in my office in New York, where I traveled tremendously. And uh, when my son was born, my second child, I had to take a very very difficult decision. Um, And that was to stop working in a field that I liked extremely, um, uh, very much, and and I was very attached to it, and I had spent 18 years of my career in it, um, and, um, you know, to stay home because I was away so much. And um, because I had um, a personality that, um, you know, could not really sit home still, and just um, babysit all day long, I had to basically think of other things, and that's how I started uh, working in nonprofits, um, you know being joining the board of my son's and daughter's school, and uh, being involved in museums, and uh, you know the love of art at that point um, of uh, and collecting contemporary art. Um, really started. And, you know, I became much more familiar with it and educated myself in that field. And that's how little by little I became um, involved.
0: We do have this perceptive, which is part of, I would imagine, Western culture, where we assume that art is simply a brush placed on a canvas do you subscribe to that feeling? Do you feel that anything is art? That uh, fashion seems like physical art, physical creativity. Do you feel we diminish the value of such things by not emphasizing them?
1: Uh, well, I mean, uh, you know, that that is a very good question because um, when you look at haute couture, which is that the highest level of fashion, um, and I was fortunate enough. Uh, Of working for a firm, like Yves Saint Laurent, that did haute couture, and um, when you see, like, the the amount of uh, handwork uh, and workmanship that goes into each garment and how unique they are and one of a kind um, and the level of expertise that goes in making each garment, they become truly a work of art. And there was many discussions, and Pierre berger actually was one of the um uh, <clears throat> partners at if a uh, partner of saint laurent in the firm and he believed that fashion was a a, 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 um, a section of the arts and a way uh, that visual arts was <clears throat> described so um yes, i do believe fashion um is is, is an art form um and and you know is is it obviously shows creativity from the side of the artist. and uh and I think that in my career um being um, in the fashion business as a merchant and and, and an editor um it really devel- developed my eye for the arts you know where I could do editing and putting things together and creating collections and um storytelling. And later on, I realized that you know, the, the reason why I can do this so well and easily is because of my training in the art, in the, in the fashion world.
0: We live in an age of uh, pseudonym tiger moms simply impress upon your child the possibilities they have and work them hard until they achieve them art seems presupposed and based on creativity, inspiration. Do you feel you can teach creativity, Roya? I think that,
1: you know, the creativity comes from within the artist. You, you can teach them uh, to improve certain skills like it is, but the ability needs to come from them. And that's why there are some great artists and there are some good artists and not so good artists. So the ones that are great uh, are the originals. That are They're the genius. They're the ones that have that God-given ability in them and that they can come up with these creative ways that um, could be new, could be um, conceptual, could be uh, an old mastery of uh, uh Uh, something as uh, old as painting um, but they have definitely this ability that um, others um, don't have that sets them apart Mm -hmm. but don't forget that being an artist is a lot of hard work Um, It's not that they're sitting in their studio um, drinking wine and smoking cigarettes. (laughs) They wake up, work really, really, really hard, um, under difficult conditions most of the time and and when they start they don't have money and you have to understand that it's not like going to the office when you uh, are guaranteed a paycheck and insurance and all of that stuff so they a lot of it depends on them and to be discovered to be taken care of for a curator or a gallery or an art patron to really like um uh, promote them and so that people start discovering them buying their work so that they can make a living off of um, their art um and unfortunately Many, many, uh, artists that have the talent, um, have to do different types of jobs in order to survive on a daily basis. And sometimes their art sort of stays, um, on the back burner for a while until they can, you know, get some money going and, um, so they can get back into their, uh, real passion. But, um, yeah, artists do work tremendously. Um, you know, I I I see them, I, I work with them. I mean, they call me all the time, come, I've done this, and what do you think of that? I've been up all night working on this painting or on this sculpture, on this, you know, idea, what do you think about this, how can I improve that? Um, and they're always, always, always working. Just because they don't put on a suit and go out the door in the morning doesn't mean that they're not working.
0: That's a marvelous way to describe it. Uh, I'm reminded of the Van Gogh example where he did not sell that much of anything, and yet his work is everywhere. Have you encountered students who have that incipient flirt of genius? What do you tell them if it's not working for them?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, uh, as, as a curator and um, uh, as an art lover, um, I, you know, I find it that it is partly our responsibilities as those people who represent these artists, that if you find a strike of genius, um, you know, this ability within these artists, uh, whether they're fragile or not uh, in personality, it's up to you to really, like, bring that out. And... Um, Most of the time, artists themselves are not the best advocate for themselves. Uh, um, We are in a period of um, art history where some of the contemporary artists today are these um, um, alpha male type A personalities that um, basically have become, uh, uh, you know, bigger-than-life, and they are represented by these bigger-than-life galleries. I don't want to name anybody, but um, so the concentration has gone towards, like, the top 10, 20 galleries in the world as top 10, 20 artists in the world. And, you know, everything is written about them, and ev- the artwork seems to be, like, circling around that. But there are so many other genres, different people, different sensitivities that need to also have a voice. So uh, thank God there are other people um, like myself, um, like-minded people that that uh, pursue these type of artists that are really um, have great talent and that are not discovered. So basically, I call myself. Uh, Um, that, uh, you know, I've represented artists that are underrepresented because I believe that their talent is great, but um, they have not had the ability yet to um, have uh, adequate representation.
0: It's interesting that you would bring up that uh, particular description of massive galleries and intimate galleries that's often been used in this country to describe religious institutions, churches, synagogues, mosques that are so huge, one hears the echo and not the prayer. In point of fact, do you feel that intimacy, for all observers, is the key to successful art? Yes, I think that you, if if
1: you're interested in art, you need to be a good listener because um, artists have stories to tell. Often they're not able to verbalize it because some of the artists, the reason why become art, the artists and not writers is because they can express themselves through their art, through their paintings, through their sculptures, through their videos. And um, it is up to people like myself, other curators, uh, museum directors, foundations, to really express to people what these people do and what they mean um, and um, and uh, yes you know they, they have these sensitivities that need to be brought out and explained and uh, people need to be patient to and recipient and and, and and be willing to capture these messages which are often um, in, in our day and, and age, not about, um, uh, just, uh, you know, decorative and beautiful art. They have like strong messages about society, about poverty, about socioeconomic situation, about uh, politics, about race, about, uh, gender, and, and so on and so forth. So, um, they're very, very interesting. And artists are extremely connected to their um, milieu and their circles and their environment. And they really uh, understand what goes on around them. And because they have this sensitivity of souls, they really feel it a lot more than um, the average
0: people. I would think that many in the listening audience would like me to ask the following question. It's a bit of a segue from the description of artwork and artists themselves, but you have excelled and done excellent work and succeeded in what really is a male dominated world. The glass ceiling hasn't impacted on your professional life at all, has it
1: no um I mean the thing is that yes in 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 most fields um uh, uh you know we, we, still the top top unfortunately is dominated by male um uh, but uh you know female in the art world have many many responsibilities you see many curatorial positions, many artists many um people in the business of art gallery owners um directors of galleries, directors of foundations, all of these uh, positions are held by women. But when you get to the top, you know, as, as, as the directors of museums and uh, people who make the top, top decisions um, and the top gallery owners, you still find um, these positions um, filled by men. Um, and even artists um when you think about artists uh, who are the top artists um uh, that are written about today um you find that uh seven out of 10 are usually male and you know the female have to still struggle to prove themselves and it, it just seems that um the history repeats itself no matter how much um, we advance as women in our rights and um, in uh, in our jobs uh, and in society? You know, we are still paid less than men, and um, the top positions in corporate America are still held by men. So I guess we have children, and that's what happened to us. You know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> let's let's perhaps describe the other side of the coin. Do you feel, ergo, the sexuality of an individual or his personality, that women have a certain innate sensitivity to a descriptive judgment of what art is, feeling the painting, the color, the style, the mode, more so than perhaps a male-oriented individual who is approaching things rather aggressively rather than creatively?
1: No, I I don't think there there's definitely like um, uh, works by male artists that are much more sensitive, and there are worked by female artists that are much more conceptual and cold, and and vice versa. I can't I can't really like um, you know make a definite um, you know judgment on that, saying that works by female artists are more feminine and. And, uh, you know, work by male artists are definitely show their masculinity. No. I, I, and, and if you stand in front of some paintings, you can say, or, or some artwork, you can say, yes, I can definitely see a woman's touch in that, but not always.
0: Is there something you can point to that's an epiphanal moment in your own life, creatively, professionally, that, as uh, some people call it, a Damascus moment, where in a sense you found what you wanted and you realize this is what you are going to do with your life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that moment of epiphany. <laughs> Indeed, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, that moment of epiphany was, for me, the time that... Um, uh, You know, I, you know, as I mentioned, I, I left my first career and, uh, you know, was not working, um, you know, professionally for, for a few years. And, um, and, uh, you know, when after, you know, collecting art and being involved in the art world as a patron and a supporter for 10 years and, um, uh, seeing that professionals in the field um, had always complimented me on my selection of works, my editing and curatorial abilities. Um, um, I thought to myself, maybe I can do this, um, you know, as a, as my second career and, um, and sort of like recreate myself in a different field. Um, and, uh, uh but it didn't really happen until I returned to my home country of Iran after 30 years. And I discovered there the art scene thriving and the world of contemporary art very interesting. And uh, that was the the, the the focus and the push that I needed. And at that moment, um, uh, you know, I I felt that I was, Um, in my homeland uh, where my roots were made um, um, and I I could connect to this art scene and I could see this generation of artists, young artists that were 20 to 25 years younger than me and through them I was discovering new art and uh, at the same time I was reconnecting with uh, all the years that I had lost uh, being my in my own country of birth, so um, I said, okay, I'm going to representing young ar- Iranian artists and curate their their work in America in pop-up exhibitions, uh, and um, um, so I did not want to have the financial pressure of a permanent gallery. But um, soon my work and my activities got momentum. And I was contacted by so many artists, uh, of Iranian roots from all over the, the world, from Iran and in the diaspora. And, uh, no, I work with both of, both, um Iranian in Iran and outside of Iran. So, um, yeah, that was my moment of epiphany that, that, yeah, I, I could do it. I can build a re- second career for myself. Um, you know, uh, in my 50s, you know, in my early 50s, I, I, I got this idea. And often women think that, oh, my God, you know, we are getting older and we should, we, nothing is going to be possible for us Yes, If I had to return back to corporate America after leaving in 10 years, yes, it would have been extremely difficult for me to get back. But, uh, you know, I was able to use all the skills that I had learned in corporate America, in the fashion industry, Um, you know, the selection, you know, the curatorial, you know, image, you know, my analytical work, working with people, analyzing a business, setting up uh, a business plan, all of these things helped me in creating a new business for myself. And the love of art and my reconnection to my country of birth was sort of like this spark that started the all.
0: Iran has been called a nation of poets, and poetry defined as both lyrical and visual. In point of fact, uh, Roya, do you feel that there isn't really in the West a true understanding of the depth of creativity in the Iranian-Persian art world. Yes, of
1: course uh, there is. isn't And it's not the fault of, of the West, uh, and especially the United States, because the um, United States and Iran have had 40 years of um, terrible relationship, and Iran has almost been a closed society for 40 years. So um, almost like two generations of Americans don't know anything about Iran except, you know, what's been uh, advertised in the media, which is uh, horrendous um, about just the one-sidedness of um, what's happening in politics and in government. You know, but, you know, if you think of people to people and, you know, the long history and a culture that Iran has had over 2,500 years since Cyrus uh, the Great um, and his human rights cylinder, um, which um, uh, basically gave uh, human rights to everybody under his uh, kingdom um, of various faiths, people of uh, um, genders, and so on and so forth. Um, You know, and, you know, these, this 2,500 years of history, poetry, music, culture, um, food, um, carpet, uh, the Silk Road, all of these things, um, you, know, ha, you know, create these depths um, in the Iranian people. You know, we have this heritage, this culture that goes way back. And you sense it when you go to the country, even the earth. I tell my friends, feels old, you know, when you step on it. Um, and, and you go to these monuments that are so, so old and crumbling. You really understand where you come from. And it's a country that has been attacked by so many different nations, by the Mongols, by the Arabs, by the
0: Afghans,
1: by, by, by the Turks. Um, and has survived and has kept its identity, has kept its language. Uh, And uh, before the revolution, there were so many Iranian students uh, in the universities in in America. So obviously, like, people had the opportunity to know uh, young Iranians on campuses. You know, they had roommates that were Iranians. They would take them home for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And, uh, you know, when summers came, you know, there were tons of American friends that would come with, um, you know, Iranian students back to Iran to visit. So there was an exchange and an understanding. And when you know each other through friends and you stay with families of friends, you have a much better understanding of who they are. But once the revolution happened, you know, all of that stuff was cut. There was no exchange of students. Iranian students don't get visas. You know, they cannot come to the United States. I think before the revolution, there was 125,000 students, Iranian students, studying in universities in in the United States. Now, if there's like 5,000, I would be shocked. So... um, so when there is no communication, when there is no actual contact, people just believe what what is said in the media and if the media repeatedly says the bad things then there is nothing replenished with the good, then nobody nobody's it's not the Americans' fault. To, to to not understand Iranian culture. So that is why I think what I am doing and what other people do like me, in not just Persian culture but any other culture, is so important in creating these bonds and these um, uh, ties uh, so that people really understand each other through culture and humanities, rather than politics, um, and um, you know, you're right. Iran is the land of poetry. It's the land of culture. It's the land of uh, uh, so many, so much history. But uh, you know, unfortunately, so many people don't know about it.
0: If we were to take that a step further and talk about the Spiritual background and uplifting in Persian society, from the days of Zoroaster to Shia, the shuras are quite beautiful. I remember reading them as a young man. Does spiritualism and the idea of something beyond the self play a distinctive role in Persian art? Yes, I mean. Uh
1: Spirituality and Sufism plays a lot in Persian art, and it comes through a lot of poetry, and poetry of Hafez, and poetry of Rumi especially. And I would say that a lot of the artists, even the young generations of artists, are very much um, affected and influenced by that culture of Sufism. Because it brings you back to to, to yourself and to finding God within yourself and not being told by others what is right and what is wrong to do and who God is and what are the commandments and what is this, you know. You just have to be a good person and you find God within yourself. And, you know, in Zoroastrian times, you know, it was like good deeds, good thoughts, good um, uh, um, good thoughts, good deeds, and good, um, uh, good. Um, uh, how do you say a good uh, heart? And 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 if you have these simple three rules uh, and apply it to a- everyday life, you don't need a zillion, uh, you know, rules and regulations that you know uh, organized religions uh, uh, give you. Um, you just apply it, you know, and and it covers so many different things, you know. Um, You you have good thoughts, you don't steal. You don't hurt people. Uh, You help people. Uh, Good deeds, you you go and, uh, you know, if somebody needs uh, your help, if somebody needs financial help, if somebody needs... uh, uh, a push, you know, you go do it, you know, if uh, and if good heart, like, you know, the same thing, you know, so uh, basic things um, without all these complications um, are the essence. And when you really think deep into yourself, um, which Sufis do, you shed all of these layers of superficiality and um, you become a good human being. And a good human being doesn't do harm, doesn't kill, doesn't steal, doesn't do harm to their neighbors. You know, they don't need to be told all of these, like, rules and regulations and pages and pages and pages and all the saints that say this and that and all of those. You know, you just basically have it. You just need to look in yourself, in your conscience, and and you look in the mirror and, and, and know who you are and try to correct yourself.
0: Do you feel then, perhaps paralleling your thoughts, do you feel then that really every successfully creative work of art is a leap of faith, an artist putting his hands on the brush and trusting the work of the easel to be the work of his spirit, his soul, his inner being?
1: Absolutely, because they put their soul in it. And the only time they don't put their soul in it is this gallery sitting there telling them, work, 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 because this work has worked very well and thought we need ten more like it. <laughs> <laughs> and then they become like a machine. <laughs>
0: Do you find that many prospective students, people that you thought potentially were marvelous, have succumbed to commercialism for the very fact that they need to be paid?
1: They do, because sometimes, you know, they have to do it because they have to make a living, and the gallery has to make a living and be successful in order to keep them as artists. So it's kind of like a catch-22. And sometimes, you know, when uh, when an artist becomes very successful with a body of work, which you know, is is successful commercially, then they become very um, scared to change a style and move and do a complete different body of work because what if it's not working? That's the moment when they become
0: extremely
1: insecure, um, and um, and they need the protection of people like their galleries or their curators to tell them that it's okay, things are going to work out, people believe in you, you are the artist, you're good, not just that painting that sold, you know?
0: Richard Dreyfus, an American actor, was asked what he regretted most. He said, I wanted to be a star, I wanted everyone to know me, and I forgot to be an actor. Is there an inherent danger in that?
1: Yeah because, then it's, it's, yeah, because then you lose yourself. You know, in becoming a star, you become the star, but you lose who you are because, you know, there's so much to sacrifice to become a star. It's, it's very difficult to become a star. You know, you have to be ready for it. That's why so many stars, you know, collapse after a while. They, they burn. They burn out. Mm-hmm. They don't shine anymore because, you know, to maintain stardom, it's it's you you need to have, uh, you know, certain abilities as a person, and you know, so for people that are in the arts, that ability is is very very seldom, you know, because they just cannot be. Ma- And to be a star, you almost need to be a machine. And, um, yeah, so for some it works, and a lot of them it it ruins them.
0: You've used the term willpower and culture as a societal motivator. Willpower and culture. Would you explain that usage?
1: Yeah. I I think I mentioned this, um, if I remember correctly, in an essay that I wrote for one of my shows, um, Iran- ex-Cuba, which was all about um, failed utopia. Uh, By that I meant that most often when politics uh, fail, culture and art are soft forces that can bring people together, Um, and that in a period of um, political and social economic challenges artists are usually um, uh, unable to speak um, this language of expected, you know, like what is expected of them. So um, they, they um, they've sort of create this realm of artistic play that is their own and um, by doing that, they create um, a society that is um, uh, in their work, I mean, it's in the, the society in their work that is utopian. So um, in other words, like history is proven to us that um, closed societies don't prevail, uh, and uh, at one point... All these liberals and artists and um, creative type uh, take matter in their own hand and create their own utopia. um, And don't let the outside forces, um, you know, crush them. I'm I'm not sure. Was I clear to you?
0: Most, Most certainly. Most certainly. We could be talking about Ptolemy thousands of years ago or talking about the moments that surround us now. The problem and the spirit of the problem is still the same. You mentioned Iran ex Cuba. You're showing it was unique and received marvelous reviews and made its point. Can you describe how the idea developed and how the presentation grew?
1: Yeah, um, Iran makes Cuba was an amazing show. And I think that um, uh, it was the first, uh, first one. I mean, it was groundbreaking because uh, I don't think every, anybody had done it before. And the thought of putting uh, artists from these two countries, Iran and Cuba, together uh, would not really occur to many people. I mean, it would occur to me because I was Iranian and I had visited Iran and and had basically spent a lot of time with Iranian young artists. And at the same time, I was um, part of the board of art in general, which is a foundation um, promoting artists in New York City, and we had uh, just gone on an art trip to Havana and visited... um, Mornings, day and night, studios of artists, um, and spending time with them going over their works and their careers and their lives, um, and having dinners in their homes and so on and so forth, and having intimate relationship with these artists, discussing discussing their like life um, uh, in Cuba, and me of course, um, you know knowing the artists in Iran knowing their situations and their life uh, in Iran. So I, I don't think many people were in that situation and, you know, who had done, like, one year Cuba the year before in, uh, in Iran and in such close proximity that you, they, they remember the people so well, the conversation so well, and the artwork so well. So it worked out perfectly. And I came out and I said to myself, this is perfect. You know, they we have, I have to do a show um, and represent artists from these two countries. And, um, uh, And a lot of people would say, oh, my God, Iran and Cuba, why? You know, I mean, what do they have in common? And I was like, you don't understand. You know, they don't. They share little in common: their geographic location, their history, their language, their religion. There's no similarities, but they have one defining event that unites them, and that is the experience of a major revolution in the 20th century, leaving both these two countries isolated and economically challenged. Um, The Cuban Revolution
0: erased
1: religion by force, uh, for it had no place in the communist ideolo- ideology, while the Islamic Revolution in Iran um, enforced it as the main manifest, and an umbrella under which all changes in the country were <laughs> justified. So. Uh, but at the end, you know, even though the, the focus of the revolution was so di- different, these two countries were isolated from the world, you know, and, and went through economic sanctions and uh, and um, and they were prevented from full, full participation in the global econo- economy for Cuba over 70 years and for Iran for 40 years. Um, but... But when you go and visit these two countries, instead of passivity and, uh, uh, and negativity, one finds really a positive struggle. Um, how can I say it? Like this relentless um, drive to survive, a tremendous amount of hope, and... Um, more surprising is um, that despite all their limitations and difficulties, both countries have thrived artistically. Um, so, when I visited Iran and, in Cuba, and Cuba, despite the visible challenges and the restrictions, I saw the beautiful people, the land, the aspects of life, how passionate and generous and lively and colorful the citizens were. I saw creativity and, innovate, uh, and this innovative spirit, and I saw a lot of courage and patience, which allowed these people to fight for their rights, but with dignity, um, while while they endured, you know, hardship at every and, and roadblock at every corner. You have no idea how difficult. Um, life is, you know. When I invited, like, a young um, Cuban artist to come to New York, who was in my show, and he couldn't make it to the show because uh, the U.S. government did not give them visas. Actually, most of the people in my shows um, could not come to the show because um, from Iran they could not get visas, and Cubans could not get visas. But One of these young Cuban artists got a visa like six months later after the show was over and he came and stayed with me for a week and I took him to all the museums and so on and so forth. But the highlight of my trip was when I took him to an art supply store and when he saw the availability of what what you can find in an art supply store in america in new york city versus what was available in havana cuba i almost cried you know he's like we have four basic colors and i make my paint using adding and mixing these colors and he saw rows and rows and rows of different paints (laughs) and rows and rows and rows of different like you know sketchbooks and, and he was just so overwhelmed by, by this, uh, you know, excess. You know what I'm saying?
0: Indeed, yes. Many of your shows are theme-oriented. Mm-hmm. There's also that feeling that one can go from one gallery to the other, and it's as if each gallery is the page of a book. Yeah. Are there themes that you are considering implementing as a future curation, something you haven't done yet that you long and wish to do.
1: Mhm. Yes, I'm doing actually a show in April, um, which is on minimalism. So it's it's a minimalist show. It's a group show of um, uh, five artists in many different mediums, from photography to painting to um sculptures and um three-dimensional works and um uh, it would be very exciting um they're all young artists um they're from all over uh, i have an artist from two artists from new york one artist from atlanta one artist from new orleans one artist from france in the show and um Uh, And I'm very much looking forward to it. We're working on that. And I'm also preparing for a a show um, uh, in Photo London. I'm I'm, I'm presenting um, four female photographers uh, in my Photo London uh, booth uh, in May. Um, And, um, yeah, I'm very excited about these two coming shows.
0: You mentioned so often in this rather marvelous hour we're having, you've mentioned meeting people who are unique, different, and new. It would seem that you are constantly holding your finger to the air and seeing which way the creative wind blows. How do you find many of these persons who are simply not known before they hang in your galleries?
1: (laughs) Yes, well, well... I, when I go to Iran once a year, I do many gallery visits and identify the artists that I like, um, and then I mm, contact those artists and I do studio visits with them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, when I do the studio visits and see their works more in depth and review the history of their works, and you know, we go over like <clears throat> their school and, um, and their past projects, and uh, their work experiences, where they have exposed, and so on and so forth. Then we talk about um, what uh, future projects they have and what are big ideas they want to <clears throat> achieve and so on and so forth. And and I keep files on all the artists that I visit. I also have... Uh, uh, follow certain artists on Instagram and follow their work and, um, you know, periodically check on them to see what they're doing. And then I uh, paid them a visit. You know, I, you know, recently went uh, to Boston um, and uh, discovered uh, the Saharani sisters, two um, sisters, twin, identical twin sisters, um, I loved what they do and uh, we worked together for a year and they did a whole new body of work for me and I showed them in October and it was an excellent show they got 11 pieces of press and they sold uh, you know 10 uh, paintings their video uh, projections on the paintings and it was extremely successful I just came back from New Orleans where I, um, I met with an artist that I have been also following, who also had a uh, was part of a group show at Noma, the Museum of uh, Art in uh, uh, New Orleans, and I met with the curator of the exhibition. So we might be doing some projects together. And um, when I go to London to Photo London, there are artists I'm going to meet there. Um, so I'm always looking um, through social media, through my visits. Uh, artists also contact me constantly uh, through my website and social media. Send me their works, and um, it's becoming very overwhelming now. It's you know, and I recently was on a TV show um, mm-hmm. where they basically followed a day in my life, and since that show, I've been bombarded by thousands of texts and emails and uh, Instagram posts and so on and so forth wanting to follow me, so it's become a little bit overwhelming, so I'm trying to, um, every day, edit a little bit my Instagram, you know, requests to figure out, you know, who I'm going to um, uh, add and who who's not right for me, so, you know, this is kind of like how I work.
0: Point of curiosity, you've mentioned Photo London. Ansel Adams, a great American photographer, naturalist, took the position that art, painting is a creation, and photography is a reflection. Could you comment on that?
1: Uh, well, I mean, maybe at his time it was, uh, because... Um, you you had you had your camera you had your lenses you had to wait for a certain light to um hit and to achieve a certain you know mood and capture and it was like a one flash of a camera and it was that instant that you would get the picture that you wanted but with digital photography and all these techniques that you can use now photography also has changed and photography can become extremely painterly uh, and um, or very very um, uh technical um, and uh, you know the whole um addition of videos uh and video projections and short films and stuff which also is part of the whole photography uh, you know uh section um it it can add also a, 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 an element of time, an element of movement, etc. To it, so uh, um, I would say that what he uh, his uh, um, reflection was correct maybe for um, for his period, but I think certainly now it has
0: changed. I and a colleague are devoted fans of Persian cinema, you can have 30 minutes of conversation, intimate conversation between two individuals without hearing one explosion or seeing one robot or one battle. Are you considering moving into cinematography for some of your showings?
1: Actually, it's funny. You know, one of the major... um, um, cinematographers in Iran has contacted me recently because he's uh, gone into photography he, because he is so good in in staging and he has created all this staging for his films um now he's working on uh, staging um these elaborate scenes and then taking photographs of these scenes which are also marvelous um so we are in discussions about um perhaps working together. So that's the closest I would be um, to cinema. But I have worked with uh, artists that work with video uh, and uh, video projection onto paintings or just videos, um, short videos that are artistic videos about their works and also sell stills of the videos as photographs.
0: To the late Listener, it would seem that you stage your actual showings. Do you find yourself placing, regimenting, checking? How do you go about staging a showing?
1: Uh, How do I go about staging a showing? Oh, my God. Um, uh, There's so many things that go into... Staging a show, first you have to basically find an idea. I mean, first you find the artists. Um, you know, you as as I mentioned before, you visit all these gal- artists. You um, sort of make notes and folders for all of them, so you have them in the back of your mind, and you know what genre of uh, work they do, and some like strike you as solo shows and it becomes like one artist shows and then you sort of figure out whether you want it to have an idea of a retrospective type of an idea that show like a, sort of a sum of their work that, um, you know, give sort of a, a an idea of what they have done in the past 10, 15 or five depending on the age of the artist, or do you want them to do a new body of work just for the show? Uh, And I can give you two examples. I had two solo shows, one with the Safarani sisters. They did a whole new body of work for this show. It was all new works with a new title, which was um, very successful. And at the same time, I had a solo show with a young photographer, Darius Neh and I showed seven series of his uh, photographs, which he had photographed in the past 14 years. And it was the first time, you know, an entirety of uh, selection of body of his work that were shown together in one room. And it was marvelous. So it can both work. And sometimes I work thematically, um, like the show that I'm having in in April, where I'm using one theme of minimalist art, and I choose various artists that work in that domain, or sometimes I ask an artist to push themselves and try to do something in that domain to sort of get out of their mold, uh, which I did with Izette Pana, and she's doing this sculptural painting, she calls them. And uh, so they all relate within one thematic idea, that are done by different artists. So, um, yeah. So I'm always, like, in the process of thinking how I'm going to present. And then, for instance, when I presented for Photo London, my four women artists, um, I had to do a presentation to them, to the curators of the uh, art fair, about what I wanted to show, and it had to kind of make sense. And, you know, of course, I... You know, I had a, a vision about how these work related to one another and what they meant next to one, one another in my booth.
0: Roya, I must say, unfortunately, we're within two minutes of the end of A Marvelous Hour. That's usually indicative of a fine program when it's gone so quickly. Can you summarize some of your feelings and share with my listening audience the ways they can come in contact with your work, the ways they can reach out and know what you're doing and experience it?
1: Uh, yes, I mean, uh, there's, I have a website, uh, projects.com uh, and where I announce my upcoming shows, and uh, they can also see my um, previous um, um, shows Um, and the press um, that we've gotten. And um, there was always um, the upcoming events at one point posted uh, in the events to come. Uh, uh, And then they can choose to to be added to our mailing list so they can be invited to uh, our future Mm exhibitions.
0: A marvelous invitation. I'm sure many in the listening audience will appreciate it and take advantage of it. In the few seconds we have, a final word for that little girl sitting by the phone now, wondering how someday she can do some of similar things. Some advice from someone who has made it.
1: I said, um, you know, I think that the formula uh, has never changed. You know, to be successful, You have to believe in yourself. You have to love what you do. You have to work hard. You have to respect people. And you have energy and purpose.
0: Well said. For the time being, we'll leave it at that. But certainly, we'd love to have you back to expand on some of these marvelous thoughts. This has been Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Our special guest, Roya Kajavi Hidari. Thank you so much.